I'm Terence Sticks. Welcome to Who's on Target. Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. Podcast where we discuss the target range of classic Doctor Who novelizations from the 1970s and 80s. Those long ago days where, if you missed Doctor Who on TV, you missed it forever. Unless, of course, you bought the target novelization. So, join us, jump aboard the TARDIS, set the time rotor for late 20th century Earth, and with a wheezing, groaning sound, We'll discuss Doctor Who on Target. Hello and welcome to Doctor Who on Target. This is David in Chelmsford. And this is Greg in Swansea. And this time we're going to be looking at The Mind of Evil by Terence Dix read by Richard Franklin. Now, the book was first published on the 11th of July, 1985, which seems like a lifetime ago to me now. And uh, I've got a few special memories around this story. And I think I've been clear in the past that John Pertwee is my favourite doctor, or perhaps joint favourite doctor with William Hartnell. Greg... Do you have any particular fondness or any particular memories for this story? Well, it's it's really interesting you say that, David, because I I actually don't. Now, I think the reason for this is, um, as you know, it was one which uh, it didn't survive, did it, in, in colour. And I think it was, was it one of the very later ones that to be actually released? Um, one of the very last on video, yes. Yes, yes. And I remember seeing it for the first time. I don't remember reading the novelisation, even though you said it came out in 1975, the novelisation. 85. Oh, 85. 85. Oh, well, that makes sense then. I probably didn't read the novelisation because uh, I think I'd um, I think I'd left um, the reading of Target Books by 1985, so I probably never did read it. So it was really was one of those mysteries to me and and when the video came out it was a really poor quality picture I remember I, I mm. think it was of poorer quality than many of the old 1960s black and white ones and um, I just remember watching it and finding it a bit um, you know underwhelming but I can tell you that my opinion is going to change from that because um uh, I, I have a very much a differently formed opinion now. But as for original memories, no, those are the, sadly, those are the um, the memories that I have. They're not very good ones. Well, I'm very pleased to learn that you've been able to reevaluate the story because it is actually one of my very favourites. And I did get the book when it came out in 1985 and I subsequently bought it in hardback, one of the very few target books I've actually kept really hardback that's great and I've kept this one because I went to a book signing or a, a signing event at the original Forbidden Planet shop 
on New Oxford Street in London in March 1989. And John Pertwee was there promoting Doctor Who The Ultimate Adventure, which was also by Terence Dix, a stage play which opened in Wimbledon later that month. So my book is actually signed by both John Pertwee and Nicholas Courtney, who wasn't in the stage show, but was at the signing event. And in those days, you didn't used to have to pay for autographs and you could take whatever took you wanted along and people would just sign it for you. Oh, well, that that is absolutely fabulous. So a hardback edition signed by those mm. of a type. That, that is a real... No wonder it's got a strong memory for you, David. That's fabulous. And the last time I saw the show, I was lucky enough to get a ticket for the premiere of the colourised version, oh. which was shown at the British Film Institute in London. Right. And that was in March 2013. Gosh. And they had a panel there, and I think Richard Franklin, who read this novelisation, was on it, as was John Levine, Sergeant Benton, Katie Manning, Joe Grant, and the director, whose name escapes me, Tim... Timothy Coombe. Timothy Coombe, yes, yeah. he was on the panel, and Terence Dix was on the panel, and wow. those anniversary events at BFI were always so good-natured, mm. and we sat there entranced by the material, and afterwards Terence Dix said that he'd noted significant audience laughter when the secret passage was discovered under Stangmore Prison. He'd spotted that that line had been a real hit with the audience. Oh. And it was very convenient that they could invade the prison using the secret passage, but then they had to resolve the whole plot within 25 minutes by then, so probably just as well. <laughs> just as well. <laughs> Do you know, that sounded like an absolute target feast that you went to there, David, at the BFI. I would love to have been there. Well, there are still some video, what do you call them, the um, YouTube Oh, you right. go onto YouTube and you do BFI Mind of Evil, you'll bring that panel up and there's about 30 minutes of that panel still live online. I'm going to look that up. We ought to talk about the themes of the story, I think, before we launch into the actual product. And for me, the theme, well, there is only one theme in the story for me, and it's crime and punishment. Right. I was thinking... The Mind of Evil was made in 1971. Another famous film with a crime and punishment theme was made in 1971. I don't know if you've seen The Clockwork Orange. Oh, yes. Stanley yes. Kubrick. Yes, yes. And that's one where a violent youth is incarcerated and corrected in quotes, using a pioneering process to secure his early release. But... Uh, he then becomes a victim of society, attempts suicide, and ironically, his attempt to kill himself sort of reverses the processing, and society ends up with an even bigger monster on its hands before they corrected him. Mm. So that's Alex, the, the, the wayward youth. And um, yes, this was a very similar theme, wasn't it? This was all about um, the rights and wrongs of correction. Well, it's, it's really interesting you say that, because... Um... I, I, I believe, I hope I'm not misquoting Terence Dix now, but I'm, I'm sure I heard him on quite a few occasions saying that um, the these deeper themes that you have in, in, in their era, you know, in the, in the, uh, the John Perry era, they're there if you want to see them, but he, he used to keep insisting, didn't he, that the, he didn't put them in. Now, I, I can't see that because 
I think it's very clearly, you know, talking about those themes, you know, and, and many other times it's very clearly on those themes. But he likes to play that down, Terence, doesn't he? Really? Yes, yeah. I think he likes to say, you know, if you want to look, it's there if you if you if you feel but he doesn't feel that um oh he actually says, you know, that he doesn't put those in uh, to be the, the main. He always has this thing, doesn't he? What he wanted was a good old-fashioned adventure to be up there so there's no blank screen on a Saturday afternoon, isn't it? But you can't deny that, um, you know. I mean, a note that I've made here about this story is real-world politic. You know, it's got that um, that feel about it, that, that feel of... Um, that it is looking at these very serious themes, you know, on this mm. in this world which is uh, encroaching onto this cosy Doctor Who world, you know. And I feel, I, I do agree with you, David. I think it is definitely there, you know. And it's mm. um, it's quite interesting that they sort of interlap with some of the other um, sort of, uh, you know, as you said, the, um, the Stanley Kubrick production of the time as well to look at these sorts of themes. Mm. I, I mean, I will just say the, the opening of the book and the and the TV series, of course, it very much has a little sort of prequel, which I thought, you know, from Terence Dix, I think I've got you, you know, it's an absolutely beautiful piece of writing. It's quite masterful. Because mm. he has this prequel where he conjures up this um, um, this little world of atmosphere and um, uh, the the premise, the setting, um, education about how people used to treat um, people who were criminals. It's all rolled up into one. It's like a, a sort of Dickensian feel to it it's really mm. masterful opening and I think he seems to um, he seems to have that touch of getting out the, to the British consciousness I think I, I think if you if you are aware of certain texts and plays and films as the one you were mentioning there then I think he's got a way of encapsulating all of this so that you get the message straight away mm. because he has that. It's a beautiful opening with all mm. these things invoked, and then it goes to a lovely, cosy scene um, between Joe and I think it was Captain Yates, is it? Uh, I absolutely recognise the passage that you're talking about because he's talking about sort of crime and retribution over the ages from yes. the tree at Tyburn to a more clinical approach to dealing with miscreants. And there's a whole ritual around the sentence being carried out for George Patrick Barnum and the prisoners are giving him a send-off by banging their tin mugs on the bars and yes yes there's a real ritual about it because of course the whole idea of the execution I mean it is ritualistic it's society exacting revenge on an individual and I can imagine where you probably stand on that and it's probably not too dissimilar to my own views, but um, yes, I did see a play called Hangmen a while back, and although the action in it was simulated, the play opened basically with a hanging mm. and the ritual around the hanging, and I have to say it was one of the most 
grim things I've ever seen on stage, even though the play itself was a black comedy, which happened to take as its subject matter the abolition of the death penalty in this country. Right. So, yes, the, that is a, a topic that would have been quite live at the time that the programme was made, because I could be wrong, but I believe hanging was abolished, although it hadn't been used for a couple of years, but it was, wasn't abolished till about 67, 68. I think, yes, yeah, it was. And you're only talking, 67 perhaps, and you're only talking about a piece of television and in Clockwork Orange as well. You're talking about about sort of material that's been made within five years of that, say, for the sake of argument. Yes, And, yeah. and so it's very, very topical, the, the replacement. I mean, what do you replace it with? You've got the ultimate sanction for people who break who severely break the social contract, which mm. is the forfeiture of your life. Yes. So, yes, this is what I take from it, the wrongs, the rights and wrongs of what is effectively judicial murder. Yes, yes. It's, it's, very, it's very interesting. It's, even though I said, you know, I'm sure I've heard Terence Dix deny it on many an occasion, a lot of the Pertwee ones are deeply entrenched in these sort of um, social and political issues. And um, I, I love the fact that that is there behind it. I, I mean, you know, even, I mean, the second story, which we had, you know, the cave monsters, uh, you know, I mean, it's alien in Doctor Who, but it, I think it's meant to be a sort of uh, understanding of, um, you know, xenophobia and, uh, and, uh, you know, other issues like that. And like you say, we've mentioned previously, you know, that with the Green Death, um, we have the issues of um, globalisation and, um, uh, you know, we have um, the Paladin adventures where we're looking at the treatment. of So, I, I, you know, I think Terence likes to say it, but I think it's there, <laughs> absolutely. I think there are a few stories in which mankind's tenancy on the planet is examined and in the Silurians, the conflict comes from the fact that the original tenants want it back. Yes. And I understand that. So it's it's an early example of a sort of an ecological or an evolutionary conundrum of a story, isn't it? Mm. And the, again, that's talking about because the Silurians see mankind as a plague that's that's taken their world. So So the xenophobia, I guess, is cutting both ways. Couldn't be more modern in today's world actually absolutely yes and yeah. um yes the actual plot in the mind of evil you've got the master's incredibly convoluted plot because it, it isn't straightforward no to um cause a, a global war by using the missile and firing it at the peace conference because once again the earth is on the verge of calamity and only the good relations between this country the united states and the chinese will save it and of course the master is sabotaging that sort of cordial relationship by having his agent steal the Chinese papers and then attempt to murder Senator Alcott it's it's very I, the last time we spoke we said how much we struggled with the modern plots when they're too frenetic yes. too many things are coming at you although this plot that's come forward from Don Houghton makes a sort of absurd sense and there are strands to it and there need to be strands to it to carry it for two and a half hours which is what the TV show would last but we sort of accept it don't we we sort of accept that 
the master does things on this scale and the doctor needs to match him in order to thwart him yeah i i thought so i mean i i mean i will say you know that um having listened to this um the new audiobook version and um of course having seen the um the dvd version the restored color one which you you mentioned you went to see at the bfi mm. earlier i've um i became a much more appreciative viewer of that i thought mm. um i thought this is classic john Pertwee doctor who is really really good but i actually listening to the audiobook i love it even more i think it's uh, because you mentioned about the master and yes of course he's um having this bit of a convoluted plot but i wonder you know is all he wants is his um materializing materialization circuit back is that is that what he what he's after one of the byproducts of his plan is that he gets by accident he's he's able just to pick up in a scuffle yeah. to recover his circuit which the doctor has which is why he's off world when he gets captured by the axons yes in the following story but i'm i must say i'm heartened to hear that the book has aided your appreciation of the televised story because one of the things that really hits you smack in the face about Terence Dix's novelization is that it's extremely true to the televised script yes and yes. you can always tell because I know these stories so well I can hum along with them I can always spot the dialogue changes but I could actually see in my head the televised versions of the scenes that Terence was describing in his writing and that can only be very effective writing sort of all part of his craftsmanship when he tells a Doctor Who story so yes I was extremely impressed and uh, it had some of Terence's motifs in it as yeah. well that he developed over the years this this um, description of the tall thin beaky-nosed man with the young old face oh. and the mane of prematurely white hair, a once-wandering time lord known only as the Doctor. Oh. And you think, oh, yes, I just... These these evoke childhood so well because we used to read that every Terence book. Yes. Right at the end, he's still giving us that description, that, that there's something familiar. It's like putting on a pair of old trousers to do the gardening. It's wonderful. <laughs> we get a sense of warmth from knowing what Terence is going to tell us next about the character and his description. But that doesn't mean to say that I think Terence's descriptions are in any way formulaic. I mean, you picked up on the quality opening passage of the book, and shortly afterwards, there's a really good description of the process chamber, which is clinical. It talks of a raised dais so the sort of thing you'd pop a throne on with a dentist chair a transparent dome and that's connected to a machine the shape of a video recorder now i wonder how many people can remember what the video recorder looks like but at, at that time all i desired in the world was a video re recorder and that room seemed quite inviting to me what else really struck me about the writing i think there are a couple of descriptions that do seem a little bit dated, like the video recorder. There's the master's chauffeur, who is as big and black and powerful as the car he drives. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. And uh, there's Chin Lee, who's declared quite a dolly. Yes. 
there's a passage where the brigadier comes across as a lovable buffoon because the doctor says he's Hokkien. The brigadier says, no, no, doctor, he's Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) And there's also a bit where the brigadier's woken from a reverie and he's dreaming about Doris, his love, down in Brighton, which is obviously not in the original script because Doris hadn't been thought of at that time. Yes, yes. There's some really nice little touches in Terence's writing in this book. Yeah, yeah. I I love the um the actual one with um the description of Chin Lee where um I thought that was really interesting where I think he's describing Captain Yates's uh, view of her as being very beautiful, really quite strikingly be- but then he says there's a a real harshness to her. There's something there. But of course we wonder, is that because she's a communist? Is that? But of course, we learn a little later that it's actually she's under the control, um, you know, some sort of mind control, isn't she? Yes, she is. She's the master servant. Yes, yes. So that that's a nice little uh, a little detour, I think. You know, in our uh, uh, our understanding there, I like that one. Yeah. Mm. It, yes, there are some very exciting passages in the book. Yeah, it does tick all the boxes with the original televised version it's all in there it's obviously a lot less visual than the televised version because i know one of the things you said to me about the story was that you found it action-packed yes yes it's a story in which the tables are turned on each of the the parties quite frequently the prisoners get the upper hand then the doctor gets the upper hand then they lose it and then the brigadier gets the upper hand yes. so there's a lot of power shifts around and as you would expect to last over that many episodes even so you know it's um i i don't mind those um sort of little battles and changes yeah. going back and forth because i rather like the sort of um almost like a physical repartee between you know, the, the the forces of good and evil in it and mm. switching back. I, I rather like that, you know, but... Do you have anything particular to say about the style in which the story is told, the narration? Well, I... Again, you know, I think it's classic Terence Dicks. I was, I'm quite surprised to note, actually, how late this one was written because I thought that Terence had you know, sort of written the bulk of his in the 70s. So to have one in in the mid-80s, um, I was quite surprised, actually. But um, mm. I think it just struck me, everything seemed to be spot on with it, you know. Like I say, there's passages of absolute classic um, tear and sticks right the way through it. I, 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 lo- I mean... Okay, some of these might not be his invention. They might have been the writer uh, Don Horton's, but um, you know the fact that it's Stangway Prison, you know, is obviously a play on it conjures up this strange ways prison, isn't it? Which we've got a, a we've already have a sense of terror and um, mental instability, and people are so that by choosing that name, it's a perfect uh, way to subconsciously get us thinking about the issues that are being involved with in here of, of um, you know, the minds of people being taken away in these prisons. So I thought that was a really clever touch. The rights and wrongs of society exacting its revenge on these people and this sort of veneer of being humane. Yes. Just in fact... Exactly. The fate is actually to be reduced to a vegetative state... Yes. Which doesn't seem that progressive or humane 
or, or doesn't seem any more progressive and humane than delivering, you know, a broken neck or something along those lines. But I think my dream of having the book read by a post-processed Barnum was clearly unrealistic because we only had four CDs and that would probably have taken at least ten. <laughs> but we had Richard Franklin instead. Now, we were a bit down on him last time because we, we felt he tried a bit too hard with Day of the Daleks and made some, frankly, unfortunate choices in the voices <laughs> that he used. But my gut feeling is that he redeems himself this time. Do you share that view? Well, I'm so glad that you said that, David, actually, because um, we were down on, on Richard Franklin last time. And like you say, it's un it was unfortunate, but I do think they, they were some very strange um, narrative choices that he made with that last one. But this one, he absolutely redeems himself. In fact, I'm rather impressed, in part, with his acting. I think uh, they are, he comes across, it's much more matter-of-fact, straightforward, and he acts some of the parts out. And when he's doing Barnum, for example, he he's um, there's some there's a piece in the I think it's on disc one where um, he's saying some of Barnum's lines and he's talking about his huge murdering hands and mm -hmm. the man has no scruples of any kind and when he's doing the dialogue when they're coming in to take him away and he's going get off me no one say he comes across as uh, quite a quite a powerful actor he he does encapsulate. Mm -hmm the character mm. very well and um mm. i was very very impressed with him in here he, he seems worlds away from the last one that we reviewed mm. which was uh it was close was it close of axos you no it was day of the dark oh sorry he, he was very very good in clause of axos and we rated that one very highly oh, yes. but then he tried a bit too hard with day of the daleks and made some as we've said unfortunate character voice choices the nazi controller the jewish manager the um just giving the doctor and the brigadier extreme speech impediments yes it was yeah. all very unfortunate but i think in the main part underpinning the success of his narration this time is that he's toned all of that right down yes so because when you actually think about john pertwee's voice it was so distinctive hmm. i i if i had to describe it in one word i'd say aristocratic yes you know what it what it absolutely wasn't was Freddie Parrotface Davis. Oh gosh. Which was how he was giving him all these quirks and idiosyncrasies in his voice that he simply didn't have. He had a slight lisp. John Pertwee had an absolutely um you but know he had a, a velvety voice. It yes. was impossible not to be entertained by the man. Absolutely, yes. And considering that Richard Franklin worked with him so long and knew him so well, you know, it's it was a strange choice to me. But as we say, we we're in redemption mode now, David, because mm. um, you know, he did it really well in here. He was straightforward and some of the lines he delivered of Pertwee's dialogue came across I, I really did picture Pertwee in my mind. Mm. He he did he, You can think of no better illustration of the improvement can you if you are actually getting pictures in your mind if you your imagination if his narration fed your imagination and that's excellent another good thing as i said was the brigadier had returned to a sort of a a gruff delivery but yes. it wasn't a delivery that was 
riddled with imperfections in the way he spoke. No, no. And, and of course, Benton was one that really wound us up in Day of the Daleks when he said, thank you, Marm, I was farmished. Farmished. <laughs> that so was... It's how hungry yes. he was. And he didn't do that here. No, no. You know, the only slight disappointment, I don't know if you found this as well, though there possibly is an upside to this, he didn't seem to attempt any sort of distinct voice for the master. No, he didn't. He was very like everyone else, and he shouldn't have been. He should have... Because the actual actor, Roger Delgado, he... It was... It, he, if he's on the screen, it's impossible not to be drawn to him. Yes, yeah. And it's a combination of his visual look and his voice, which is incredibly powerful. Absolutely, it is incredibly powerful and very hypnotic too. It was quite a, mm -hmm. quite an interesting thing that he used to have these powers of hypnosis because he very much came across as someone who could do that very convincingly. Mm. Um, mm, yeah. I, I mean, I I understand fully, you know, the actor's desire to do something different, to be bold and experimental and try something new, um, which clearly mm. um, Richard Franklin did do in, uh, in The Day of the Daleks. But I'm so glad that he's got that out of his system, you know, and he's he's come to this one and he's delivered um, a really good performance of... Uh, you say there might be a few quibbles with something, but, um, mm. you know, I'm very, very impressed with it. And it, the pace was brisk. The pace was, um, mm. you know, it gave a, a nice sense of pace, as I say, to, that, to the story. Mm. I was very, very pleased with it. I don't know if... Could we mention as well um something the soundscape the technical recording um, what what do you mm. feel about this because i I've, I've made a few notes about that too mm, i've made a few notes as well okay oh this is going to sound a bit familiar if anyone's listened to any of our other podcasts but every single time we do a target novel we we talk about the technical presentation we talk about the soundscape and we usually say how disproportionate it is to the action that's going on it's i don't know it's like uh, an episode of the goon show where the sound effects table is doing over the top sound effects to illustrate what the goons are saying we do i don't think any do. of our younger listeners will pick up on that at all but <laughs> never mind but this one the incidental music provided good bridge between the chapters seemed quite atmospheric and effective the keller machine was quite noisy but that was fair enough as far as i was concerned it had a weird ominous wobble and screech to accompany it on its travels around the prison which i actually quite liked yes. i have to say less positive the stolen chinese papers seemed to burn louder than conventional documents oh yes yes they just went up didn't they yeah and uh, there's there's a particularly grinding bit in this audio where chin lee is immobilized by the doctor whilst attempting to kill the u.s delegate and the text says that her body is caught by the brigadier who lowers it gently to the ground However, this is accompanied by a noise akin to a sack of spuds being dropped from a moderate height. <laughs> so I didn't quite get that one. There were a couple which jarred and which didn't quite tie in with the text. And we have come across that before, as you say. With They tend to be the earlier 
like audio go ones which are the worst offenders but i think they're getting better and better at it now but there are still a few slip-ups like that, you say, which I, where I think maybe the engineer doing this isn't quite as familiar with the text as maybe they should be, um, mm. uh, as the example you gave there. But I will say, I was actually... I thought the um, the sound effects of the prisoners banging mm. their metal mm. cups and that, and I thought that was spot on. It was atmospheric. It didn't overpower... Um, the dialogue and the narration, but it gave a lovely sense of um, uneasiness. Yes, impending disaster. Yes, yes, it did it really well. It was ominous. It was ominous, yes, that's a perfect word. It was ominous, and I thought that it was really nice. It wasn't overdone. They brought it in for, you know, a little while, then they faded it out. But I did notice when Richard Franklin was reading some actual dialogue pieces in this and speech um they put a nice little echo on his voice to give the impression that he was actually in those echoing prison uh cells mm. with the high which was i thought that was that was nicely done and nicely thought out so i was impressed with that and i thought the whole mm. the whole technical presentation was by and large by and large pretty good well, I think the word we've used in the past is proportionate. Yes. I think that I would broadly agree that it was in this case, oh, apart from a couple of howlers, but you can't win them all, can you? No, no, but definitely there's a big sense of improvement uh, coming across with, the, with as these new releases are coming out, I feel. Did you have any strong views on the packaging, on the actual product here? Well, again, they've used the original Beautiful Target cover, who did this cover, David? Well, the cover was by an artist called Andrew Skilleter. Oh. And he was very prolific in the 80s. He illustrated John Nathan Turner's various books, as well as he had his own range of, I think it was called Who Dares, and then he linked up with cyber leader David Banks to illustrate David Banks' various books on Cybermen. Oh. So he was prolific. I mean, I would describe that cover as about as fabulous as it can be without featuring the Doctor. Right. I'm that fond of it. Yes, yeah. Wow, that's praise indeed. That really is. It's a, it's an, it really is an eye-catching cover. And because he's talking of eyes, his, his, Roger Legado's eyes here have that absolute hypnotic look to them, don't they? Mm -hmm. It's a great cover. Really, really good. Um, the rest of the packaging... Um, we have the lovely booklet inside, of course, which is a little bit short on facts, I think, this uh, this time. Um, mm. I mean, you know, there's a page of there, but sometimes we get a little bit more. But it could be because it was one of the later ones in the in the range, you know. But there is some interesting uh, information to be gleaned from it. So, um, yeah, I think the packaging is 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 very good. Yes, I would say that the CD set is a thing of beauty. It's mm. a really good addition to anybody's audio collection. Oh, yes. I do like it a yeah, lot. Absolutely, yes. And and when you actually play in the CD, the sound quality is excellent, isn't it? It's, mm. really, it's really good quality. And uh, I will say um, disc four, um, which is the sort of, you mentioned earlier about them having to sort of wrap everything up in 25 minutes, uh, hence the, the secret passageway. Um, but actually, I, I really like disc four because it echoes the uh, the way it goes full tilt 
battle mm. sequence, doesn't it, mm. in the in the original mm. TV one? And I think this this goes on with that, and it's great. I don't mind it at all. I don't disagree. Oh, that's that's really great to hear. That. Do you know, dear? What what I really liked about um, coming to the mind of evil again is, as I say, I never really appreciated it before. I started to appreciate it a lot with that lovely cleaned up. It was put into colour, wasn't it? It was colourised, wasn't it? Yes, it was colourised by yeah. a gentleman called... Well, he's called Babel Colour. He's called Stuart Humphreys in reality. Oh, right. And he hand-coloured key frames of the first episode, which were then tracked on a computer to fill in the detail. And uh, the other five episodes, they got chroma dot information from... And that allowed them to recover some colour. There's a difference in the quality of the colour of the episodes now. The, the supreme one is episode one that's been hand-coloured. Mm. And there, there's a slight dip around some of the other episodes, all depending on how good the information that's been recovered. Mm. But yes, it, it's a very... It's lovely to see it reborn in colour. Yes, yeah. And do you know... It's interesting you say that because after listening to this um, this disc this uh, disc set here, yeah, the story has been reborn with me as well because uh, as I say, I really come to appreciate it a whole lot more. And the little comedy, I love some of the touches in there. There's a classic um, John Pertwee line where Doctor or Professor Keller is talking about his machine and the doctor John Pertwee is is like the naughty boy at the back of the class mm. shouting out uh, little comments isn't he you know sort of saying uh, heckling him with uh, <laughs> yeah I, I love that's right yes I, it gives a commentary on what's going on that's right I love that you know there's a description that says the doctor took up his seat in the front row he didn't suffer from false modesty something along those lines which I found <laughs> quite quite funny yes and of course he said you know he's saying uh something like you know those talk of talking of infallibility are usually on very shaky ground <laughs> you know I, I i love that and um i also thought um the uh you know the the scenes of where the machine gets into their mind and they have these um uh, how would we describe them? They're hallucinations? Of, yes, yes. They're sort of hallucinations with the rats attacking or with Keller. It was drowning, wasn't it? Was it drowned? Well, one of them drowned. One of them was attacked by rats. The doctor suffered an inferno and the master suffered a laughing doctor. Oh, Do you remember? Yes, of course. The, the master's biggest fear is being mocked by the doctor. Yes, that's a, that's a nice little uh, touch, isn't it? Characterisation touch there. And and of course, keeping you know with with the language and and Terence Six's masterful crap. Although of course, should give credit to Don Horton there as well. Of course, um, we have um, the name Emil Keller conjures up you know some um, mm. you know sort of uh, I don't know I don't want to say if it's like a sort of a, a German type. Uh, well, he's Swiss, isn't he? He's Swiss. So it's, it's he's Swiss. The Keller. Machines come from Switzerland. Oh, of course, yes. But it's an ominous sounding name as well, isn't it? I've actually written in my notes here, one vowel away from killer. <laughs> um, I did think when you were talking about the hallucination scenes and um, what was going on with this parasitical monster, it was all rather Freudian, wasn't it? And it really struck home then when you reminded me 
of that bit with the with the the doctor mocking the master. It's very mm-hmm. Freudian, isn't it? It's like something you'd get in a Hitchcock film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, does doesn't Keller meant we go into a sort of we go into his mind when he's having this, and he suffered. Uh, he nearly died through drowning. I think it said when right. when he was young, and it said this was coming back to him. So it's picking up on their their deepest fears, isn't it? Yes, it picks the weakest link of the chain and attacks it. Gosh, yeah. yeah. It's a deep story. There's a lot to this, isn't it? It's an excellent story. It's, yeah. it's really one of my favourites. And I think the rarity of it made it even more tantalising when it was yes. released on video. And I agree with you, the quality of the VHS tape wasn't brilliant. And then to see it reborn is just marvellous. And do you know what, David? I so enjoyed this. As soon as I get back from holiday... I'm going to get my DVD copy out and I'm going to watch it all again because um, I enjoyed it that much. I, I really Fantastic. did. And, yeah, yeah, it's a real, it's a real beauty. Before we score it, is there anything else you'd like to bring to the conversation? Are there any bits that we haven't covered? I, I have a feeling this is one of those stories where, you know, we, we could discuss a lot more again, but there's nothing coming straight to mind. I mean, I, I've covered all of all of my notes and um, I just think everyone in it was great. You know, it's like, like I said, that, that last sequence, that, that coda, if you like, of the story where, you know, it all takes place. And, you know, they also capture that. There's a classic scene there where the brigadier comes in and, he he's like a proper English gentleman and gives them their chance. I'm in charge now. You have to surrender. And of course, the shot rings through and just misses him, doesn't it? The mm-hmm. uh, and I thought that that's a comical scene, but by golly, he springs into action then, doesn't he? Is uh, <laughs> it's just great stuff, you know? It's I mean, isn't it horrible to say you know with guns and real, but it's it's a sort of joyous scene. You you're cheering on, you know, unit. You know, they're yes. they're, they're against the odds, and uh, that's right. There's the keen young officer who the brigadier obviously feels threatened by, who, and he this this upstart congratulates the brigadier on his plan, and the brigadier is very dry and scathing in his his response because he's he's the guy who thinks of the Trojan horse going in in the van with the supplies, isn't he? The oh, the Black really, Maria, yes. He's really proud of his strategy, but he's, yes. he's not only dealing with the master, he's dealing with a, a bit of a know-it-all way down the ranks as well. Because yes. at the end of the day, we just love the Brigadier. We just love Nicholas Courtney's performance. Absolutely. We just love the unit family. We just love the Doctor. I mean, everything in there. I mean, even after um, they, you know, Keller tries to make a, a fool of the Doctor, you know, talking about science. Um, mm. You know, I love the way when they, they leave and uh, Joe turns around and sort of gives a little quick to him. He's a genius, you know, and she, <laughs> she sticks. Isn't that lovely? You know, it's mm. really, it's like, I've got your back, Doctor. And yeah. uh, it's that camaraderie, that sticking together, that close, yeah. well, unit really, isn't it? It's the unit family. Mm. And um, I really, you know, I know I'm I'm heaping praise on this, but you, you don't disagree with me, David, at all, no, do you? No, I don't it's disagree just... at all, no. Yeah, it's good. yeah. But we, we do I'm... need to come to a score... Oh, well, do you know, I, I've had a score in mind all day when I've, I looked at my notes earlier. And um, for me, 
I'm going to give this um, a really strong 9 out of 10. <gasps> I've had to intake my breath there. <laughs> you see, I was going to score it 7.5, oh. but I've had a think, and I'm right. going to award it an extra point because Richard Franklin did not attempt to do character voices for the Chinese characters, which I think would have been a disaster. Oh, so in recognition of his improvement, I'm going to match your nine. Really? Wow. Mm. Wow. This You see, this is amazing because um, I, I wasn't going into this with any sort of enthusiasm at all, you see. And, um, you know, obviously we got the desks and stuff. And... Um, it's just lovely to rediscover an absolute classic target and have that. And like I say, I'm so I, I, I salute Richard Franklin for not doing those Chinese. Well, if he'd have done that, it would have been awful, wouldn't it? That's a, that's one of our best scores, David, isn't it? That's right up there with the Sontaran experiment, that one. So this is highly recommended, David? Highly recommended. Oh, lovely product. Yeah. Well read, well written, exciting story. Do you know, I think I'm going to listen to the audiobook again as well. I liked it that much. It's taken me back to Death of the Daleks and those other ones which we love so much. Well, it's been absolutely fabulous talking about this book and um, a real revelation as well. It's, like I said, really great to discover it. And um, I'm really interested, you know, it's been really great to hear the information you've you've uh, shared with it with us as well. So um, what are we going to be doing next, David, for the targets? The target books, I think we need to do Planet of Giants, which yes. we've now received. So we'll... William Hartnell, yes. We will return with that as our next target review. Excellent. Thank you, David. And we will uh, we'll hope that you are going to download and listen to us very soon. Please tweet us at Doctor Who on Target. That's Dr. Who on Target, or email us at Doctor Who on Target at gmail.com. That's the end of this episode, and I would like to thank BBC Audio and Penguin Random House for kindly supplying us with preview copies, and to Smerin's Antisocial Club for the use of their version of the Doctor Who theme tune. The biggest thank you goes to you, our listeners.